Good morning. Welcome back to Recovering Through Highness. It's March 2nd, 2020, 8 a.m. This is the day before Super Tuesday, so I encourage everybody to get out and vote. And since politics is on everybody's mind at this point in time, I wanted to talk about politics, but not about our current president, but I wanted to look at our history, and more specifically, the history of our drug laws. Drugs have a long history of being problematic in this country, including alcohol. And as I mentioned before, I teach at a school called New Creation College where I teach people that are working to become upcoming substance abuse counselors. And this is a topic that I discuss in detail. And so I thought it would be fun to do a podcast on this to hopefully educate people on why the United States made the decisions that they had made to create the laws that have brought us up to our current state where we still classify it as a war on drugs. And all presidents since Nixon have utilized the war on drugs for their own political purposes. I want people to understand, and I encourage everybody to not just believe what I say, but hopefully that I can spark an interest for people to look into the information that I see. In terms of being on Facebook or other forms of social media, we see news articles or we see information that's posted out that has completely inaccurate information, and it it created a curiosity in in me when I see posts by people that have wrong information and very inaccurate information and then responses of people that clearly have not looked into it and just thumbs up (laughs) or obviously just believe what is being posted. This has shown that we have a society full of ignorant, unintelligent, uninformed individuals that have the information at their fingertips when you go onto the internet. I tell my students, I tell clients all the time not to just believe what I say, but again, hopefully to encourage them to look into the information themselves. Some of the stuff that I may talk about today may sound like a conspiracy theory, but there is sources and locations that you can look into this that are legitimate sources uh, to validate the information that I'm going to say. One of the reasons that this to me is so important is because the current laws and the drug laws that have been instigated throughout history in terms of the substance abuse have created a lot of hatred, has created a lot of shame because of the lack of information that's put out there. I'm not necessarily promoting let's legalize all substances, although I wouldn't necessarily go against that argument, but more of what I'm interested in doing is to share information so people can make the decisions on what they think is right and what they think is best. Are the laws that were put in place, are they for our best interest? Are they for the health of the country? Are they Were they implemented because drugs are bad or drugs are unhealthy or drugs are harmful and so let's make laws to save our people or were they created for other alternative reasons that may have done an enormous amount of harm to us? And so that's what I want to look at today and that's kind of the question that I want everybody to think about when I talk about the history and why we are at the current place that we are. So I'm going to propose a couple of questions before I actually get started. And I want everybody to think about this. The first one is, are drugs the problem? Is it the drugs that are the problem or is it the laws that are creating the problem? Is there such a thing as a crime with no victim? Example, that would be a possession of a controlled substance. Has the government been honest with us, looking out for our best interest? Or were policies put in place that were strictly designed for re-election that have destroyed and killed hundreds of thousands of lives? Do drugs create 
create crime? Or is it the laws that promote crime? Where did some of these drugs come from that are killing people? So these are some of the questions that we're going to hopefully answer. And we're going to look at history. I think history should be a learning experience for us. We always talk about, let's not repeat the same mistakes that we have made before. And so that's what we're going to look at. Are we doing that? Are we repeating the same mistakes that we have been doing from the beginning of the criminal laws that were put in place against drugs. So the war on drugs with some is highly misunderstood. And as I promoted the question, is it doing more harm than good? I believe has been the primary factor in creating a lot of the shame and the hatred that we have today for the drug abusers. And some don't understand the history behind what's actually going on. I'm actually in the process of working on another book that the title is still in the works, but related to how our our biases, our perceptions, and misinformation will alter our view of the world. And our country has a long history of drug use, but not a result of a lot of people's general understandings and the reasons for it. So prior to the year 1914, all drugs were legal and there were no, no restrictions whatsoever. There were a lot of people addicted to drugs in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, and the reasons for this were different than what we see today. So there is a debate on the extensity of morphine addiction from the Civil War, but it was prominent with women, and more so than men who were the drinkers. In 1895, Heinrich Dresser of Germany tried changing morphine chemically in hopes that it would alter the side effects and extreme rates of addiction that were associated with morphine and opium. So the question comes, where did heroin come from? And the answer to that is the Bayer Corporation. So it was a pharmaceutical company that produced a drug and they called it heroin. They did advertise this drug as a painkiller that was at least 10 times as potent as morphine, but no addictive properties whatsoever. Now today we know how inaccurate that information is because of the way that the heroin enters the brain. So as a drug that is more lipid soluble than morphine, it crosses the blood-brain barrier quicker, increasing the, the abuse potential. Some historians have identified two groups of people that were prominently addicted to opiates in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and those were war vets from the Civil War and what they called soccer moms. Now the soccer moms were typically white, middle-class women who stayed at home and we had individuals that were not doctors and they were salespeople that would come along with carts and they would sell these elixirs to many of these white middle class women. In 1906 the Food and Drug Act was enacted which was not a criminal law but it was a law that required that all drugs of human consumption be labeled by and, and this ultimately was where the Food and Drug Administration was enacted which probably had the greatest impact on addiction because I hold a firm stance on education and self-responsibility. So once the Food and Drug Act was initiated, they investigated what was in a lot of these patent medicines and they found that it was approximately 50% morphine, which drastically cut down the use of these elixirs. Morphine use would have prominently been used in the North versus the South because of the South being much poorer. Typically, when somebody would get injured in the South, they would give them liquor, have them drink it, and then cut off a limb versus in the North where they could give them morphine to do amputations or to do surgeries or things of that nature. 
The first criminal law that came into play was in 1914, and it was proposed by an individual by the name of Francis Burton Harrison, which became known as the Harrison Narcotics Act, and it was approved on December 17, 1914. And this is what the way that it was written. An act to provide for the registration of with collectors of internal revenue and to impose a special tax on all persons who produce, import, manufacture, compound, deal in, dispense, sell, distribute, or give away opium or coca leaves, their salts, derivatives, or preparations, and for other purposes. So the Harrison Narcotics Act applied to two substances. It applied to opium and any derivatives of that, and the coca plant and any derivatives of that. When we look at the reasoning behind this law, and we go back to the language behind it, an act to provide for the registration of, with collectors of internal revenue, and to impose a special tax on all persons who produce, import, manufacture, compound, deal in, etc., etc., etc. So several authors have argued that the debate was merely to regulate trade and to collect a tax. However, the committee report prior to the debate on the House floor and the debate itself discussed the rise of opiate use in the United States. However, Harrison stated that the purpose of this bill can hardly be said to raise revenue because it prohibits the importation of something upon which we are ultimately going to collect revenue. So later Harrison stated, we are not attempting to collect revenue, but regulate commerce. But there was a representative and his name was Thomas Sisson who stated that the purpose of the bill, and we are all in sympathy with it, is to prevent the use of opium in the United States to destructive as it is to human happiness and human life. So is that the truth behind the reason for this bill and the reason that it was enacted? Well, at the beginning of the 20th century, cocaine began to be linked to crime. So in 1900, the Journal of American Medical Association published an editorial, and this is what it stated. Negroes in the South are reported as being addicted to a new form of vice, that of cocaine sniffing or the coke habit. Some newspapers later claimed cocaine use caused blacks to rape white women and was improving their pistol markmanship. Chinese immigrants were blamed for importing the opium smoking habit to the United States. The 1903 Blue Ribbon Citizens Panel, which was the committee on the acquirement of the drug habit, they concluded that if the Chinamen cannot get along with his dope, we can get along without him. And so obviously we all know that in the history of this country there's a lot of racism, and when we look at all these different statements and we look at the articles, that racial prejudice seems to be a big play in the reasons for these laws, not necessarily for the health and the benefit of Americans in this country. So the drafters played on fears of drug-crazed, sex-mad Negroes and made references to Negroes under the influence of drugs murdering whites, degenerate Mexicans smoking marijuana, and Chinamen seducing white women with drugs. So Dr. Hamilton Wright testified at a hearing for the Harrison Act, and Wright alleged that the drugs made blacks uncontrollable, gave them superhuman powers, and caused them to rebel against white authority. So Dr. Christopher Koch of the State Pharmacy Board of Pennsylvania testified that most of the attacks upon the white women of the South are the direct result of a cocaine-crazed Negro brain. So a lot of the testimony played into the racial aspects against the blacks, the Mexicans, and the Chinamen. And it originally, it the act appeared to be concerned about the 
marketing of opiates. However, there was a clause applying to doctors that allowed distribution in the course of his professional practice only. And again, quote, in the course of his professional practice only. So this clause was interpreted after 1917 to mean that a doctor could not prescribe opiates to an addict. And the reason being is that addiction was not considered a disease at that time. There were a number of doctors that are, that were arrested, some were imprisoned, and the medical profession quickly learned not to supply opiates to addicts. So let's take for a moment and let's hypothetically think about this. So let's say you were living in the year 1914 and you were using morphine or you, you were using heroin, whether we're defining this as right or wrong, but this was something that was available that you were using. Um, everything was legal back then. It wasn't a problem. And then all of a sudden the federal government comes along and they makes make these substances illegal. And originally it was designed as a tax. So a doctor could pay a dollar to pay for uh, prescribing these substances. And if you were caught on the street without having a prescription, then you were fined, let's say, a thousand dollars. And this was not overseen by the criminal justice system at all. This was seen again as a tax. And so ultimately you would be charged with tax evasion. So for somebody that understands the addictive potential behind opiates and the real discomfort and pain involved in getting off of opiates, they may understand what the results were and ultimately what creates a black market. So anytime that we take something and we make it illegal and it's of interest for people to purchase for whatever reason, then we create a black market. So the impact of diminished supply was obvious by mid-1915. So a 1918 commission called for sterner law enforcement while newspapers published articles about addiction-related crime waves. And Congress responded by tightening up the Harrison Act. The importation of heroin for any purpose was banned in 1924. The use of the term narcotics in the title of the act to describe not just opiates but also cocaine is, is actually a misclassification of substance Narcotics are defined as a central nervous system depressant, while cocaine is a central nervous system stimulant, and this did create a frequent legislative and, again, judicial misclassification of various substances as narcotics. The act also marked the beginning of the creation of the modern criminal drug addict and the American black market, like I said. The monthly summary of foreign commerce of the United States recorded that in the seven months to January 1920, 528,635 pounds of opium was imported compared to 74,650 pounds in the same period in 1919. So in a nutshell, the Harrison Narcotics Act, which was to target certain ethnicities and people that were using the substances were no longer allowed to voluntarily do it unless they paid a tax. Later on, it was determined that because addicts or people that were hooked on the substances could no longer receive it from their doctors, they were forced to either stop the substance and go through the withdrawal symptoms or obtain it through another source, which ultimately is what happened. Black market increased, and a lot more of the drug came into the country than was previously getting into the country. So the Harrison Narcotics Act 
that was originally designed to reduce the supply of these substances has actually increased the supply of the substances coming into the country as a result of the addicts or the people that were hooked on it. And because price goes up, they now are committing crimes. And the most well-known prohibition in this country is alcohol prohibition. And this was originally the only amendment that was made to the Constitution. It was the 18th Amendment. It was also known as the Volstead Act. It was designed to curb the alcohol problem. And once again, we can always ask the question in terms of, did it work? Was it effective? Or did it create more harm than good? And I think the Volstead Act is probably the greatest example of this. What the Volstead Act did was it was known as a decriminalization. And what that basically means is that it was illegal to manufacture. It was illegal to import. But it was not illegal to drink. And most of the, the creators of this act were not opposed to drinking. This was probably one of the first or only laws ever um, in terms of substances that they made something illegal and not opposed to doing it themselves. Now, as most of us all know that the Volstead Act created an environment for organized crime like this, this country had never seen before, and it wasn't really quite prepared for it. It was 13 years later that an amendment was made to the Constitution to repeal the 18th Amendment. So this was the 21st Amendment that appealed the 18th Amendment, and it made alcohol legal once again. So the gangsters during the 20s and the 30s, during this time of prohibition in the Volstead Act, also was able to utilize heroin and cocaine to also make enormous amounts of money because of the legality behind the Harrison Narcotics Act. So one of the major reasons that they did repeal the 18th Amendment with the 21st Amendment was because of the huge failure that resulted from prohibition of alcohol. And as I've seen and as we've all seen in this country, we don't seem to learn from history. And so they decided to attempt a new prohibition in the late 30s after the repeal of the Volstead Act. So in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act, which was headed by an individual by the name of Harry Anslinger. So Harry Anslinger was the first commissioner of the United States Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Now, if we remember the Harrison Act, it was classified as a tax act. This was also why this was known as the U.S. Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Of narcotics. And Harry Anslinger held that position during the presidencies of Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. He was a supporter of prohibition and criminalization of drugs, and he was also a notorious racist who supported the victimization of African Americans while spreading anti-drug policy campaigns. So Harry Anslinger held office an unprecedented number of years in his role as the commissioner until 1962, and he held it for 32 years. He then held office two years as U.S. representative to the United Nations Narcotics Commission, um, and these were the responsibilities once held by Anslinger are now largely under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Office of National Drug Control Policy. Harry Anslinger held no belief that marijuana was dangerous, nor did it harm people. So why did he target marijuana? 
marijuana. Smoking marijuana in the United States was very limited and confined mostly to the Southwest because the majority of the country knew nothing about the uh, psychoactive ingredients of THC. So prior to the federal government passing the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, there was about 30 states that had passed criminal laws against this drug for various reasons that included racial prejudice against Mexicans, fear that heroin use would lead to marijuana, religious reasons, there were pharmaceutical companies that saw it as a competitor, and to demonize the hemp industry because it was a low-cost alternative to paper pulp. Harry Anslinger would eventually lead a campaign that would destroy hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. How would he do this? And the answer to that question is fear. So fear is the way to control what people see. So promoting fear, especially to ignorant individuals that have no knowledge of the target that's being introduced makes this easier. This encouragement of fear does have a long history and it is usually used by individuals to manipulate for a personal agenda. Adolf Hitler, for, exa for example, who has been considered a man who had mastered persuasiveness, he used a tactic that was called either or fallacy. So he understood that for him to maintain power, he had to gain support of the Germans. Now, it's evident that Hitler's propaganda answered that question for the people. Do the ends justify the means? He must convince them that no matter how unethical or immoral, they only had one option. He informed them that either they annihilate the Jews or the Jews will annihilate or enslave them. Either or, which is a tactic that promotes fear. I will say a Donald Trump statement real quick. This either or fallacy is similar to what Donald Trump uses in an example would be when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. So Trump has repeatedly used the either or fallacy in promoting fear. So we either build a wall or your family will be murdered, your children will be raped, and unless we secure a border, drugs will continue to enter this country. Now, Donald Trump understands that his comments are misleading because statistics don't validate his arguments. Most drugs that come into this country from Mexico are through legal ports, they're not through unsecured borders. So marijuana became the target by Harry Anslinger in the 30s to serve his agenda and fear is what sealed the deal. The year prior to 1937, there was a film that came out and it was titled Reefer Madness. And this was originally titled Tell Your Children. And it was financed by a church group to show the dangers of cannabis use. And the film was purchased soon after filming in 1936 by this guy by the name of Dwayne Esper, who recut the film. And he avoided censorship under the principle of moral guidance. Now, Reefer Madness is a story of a couple who sell marijuana to teenagers. The movie includes attempted rape and murder, while the film's characters are under the, under the influence of marijuana. Now, the story is told at a parent's teacher's association by a character by the name of Dr. Alfred Carroll, the high school principal. Now, the end of the film proves the power of fear and what is about to transpire in Congress in 1937, and this is a quote from the movie. The next tragedy may be that of your daughter, or your son, or yours, or your looking and pointing at the camera in the last moment of the movie and yours. So Harry Anslinger was the man who was considered the architect of the war on drugs. Harry Anslinger was no longer promoting marijuana as innocent, but he started promoting it as something that was much more sinister. Now, according to a book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs by Johan Harry, Harry Anslinger was aware of the weakness of his new position. A war on narcotics alone, cocaine and heroin outlawed in 1914, wasn't enough. They 
They were used only by a tiny minority, and you couldn't keep an entire department alive on such small crumbs. He needed more. And so based on this idea, it sounds that fear, again, of him losing his job was going to be the promoter and the reason why he needed to get marijuana to fall under a guideline of prohibition. Now, with propaganda such as Reefer Madness and Harry Anslinger's statement of what he made in Congress, they adopted the Marijuana Tax Act against the American Medical Association's testimony that marijuana is not a dangerous drug on April 14, 1937. When Harry Anslinger went into Congress, his testimony was, and I quote, marijuana is an addictive drug which produces in its users insanity, criminality, and death. The primary justification for criminal drug laws that followed the Marijuana Tax Act were legislatures that were promoting the idea that we have an increase in drug use and primarily primarily by our youth. So the sales pitch usually revolved around your children will become addicted if we don't do something and the best something is to increase the penalties. The Boggs Act, which was in 1951, and the Daniels Act of 1956 took the penalties from the Marijuana Tax Act and multiplied them times eight. Many states would uh, eventually follow suit, and they created the Little Boggs Act and the Little Daniels Act that created consequences that were unimaginable. So in some states, after the Little Boggs Act or the Little Daniels Act, you could get five years for rape, 10 years for murder and 20 years for possession of marijuana. And this isn't even sales, this is just possession. Now, we're going to jump into what I think is probably the most interesting part of the story, and I'm going to tell you a quick story on this individual by the name of Farrell Kirk. Now, Farrell Kirk no longer wanted to live, and as being dead seemed more appealing to him than the current state of mind that he was in. And unsure on what was happening, a voice repeatedly told him to end his life. Farrell Kirk slashed his wrists, but the staff at the Atlanta Federal penitentiary where he was at arrived quickly and they began stitching him up. Now, according to the Central Intelligence Agency's website, CIA.gov, and you can validate this information, Farrell Kirk reported, this is what he said, I begged them not to put me in the hole. Now, after being locked in isolation, he began chewing his veins with his teeth until he passed out. They eventually opened the door and they quickly gave him a blood transfusion to keep him alive and then they put him into a straitjacket to keep him from harming himself any further. Now, once they released him from the straitjacket and he was left alone, he attempted to hang himself with his blanket. He did nearly succumb to his injuries. Was this a mentally disturbed man? Was he someone who should be evaluated for mental illness and treated by a medical doctor? Maybe he was in the wrong place, or maybe he was faking it so he could get transferred to another facility that was more appealing. Now, this was the 1960s, and what if he heard and was following the lead of Timothy Leary, who tried to avoid serving a 20-year prison term? Now, let's talk about real quick these drug crazed hippies. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the image of the rising subculture that developed in the 60s. They were a pacifist group that promoted love and peace, but highly criticized as many held nonviolent protests against the Vietnam War. Now, a lot of conservatives viewed them as draft dodgers, irresponsible. They were people that were inducing large amounts of LSD that was known to drive people insane and commit suicide. And they cared very little about a safe society, what was appropriate, and the harm they caused by not fulfilling their duties to protect our freedom.
freedom. Some may have heard of Ken Kesey. Now, Ken Kesey was a novelist who graduated from Stanford University. He was the individual who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and held parties that were known as acid tests. Timothy Leary is another character, and he was a clinical psychologist at Harvard University and conducted experiments under the Harvard Psilocybin Project from 1960 to 1962. Now, these experiments were psilocybin, which is mushrooms, or magic mushrooms, as people like to say, and also LSD. Now, he had his students ingest mushrooms, uh, which were questioned by Harvard University, and he was fired in 1963. And he believed that psychedelics did have tremendous potential for therapeutic use and quickly promoted the drug. Timothy Leary gained tremendous support by some, but he was also hated by many. And he was often quoted in the most famous quote that he always said was turn on tune in drop out timothy leary the most dangerous man in america according to president richard nixon he had escaped from prison after receiving a 20-year prison term now i'd assume that his charges must have been pretty serious to receive such a long prison term and marijuana use was on the rise which had been defined as the most dangerous drug that creates in its users insanity criminality and death which was less than 30 years earlier by harry anslinger these were scary times and our government made sure that we knew the truth. Or did they? The Vietnam War was ravaging our servicemen as they became addicted to heroin, which had been described to calm their nerves as they lived and fought in a country with the fear of losing their life at any moment. It became important for Nixon to address this epidemic, and he did declare a war on drugs by defining it as public enemy number one. Now, an enemy that continues to plague us every day as each president continues to reinforce their hatred for this enemy. Now, the 1960s, must remind us that drugs and the drug users are destroying our country. LSD must be eliminated as the hippies continue to urge resistance to a respectful society. Better control in prison so our streets can remain safe from dangerous men. And better evaluation so prisoners aren't incarcerated in facilities that are unstable and require institutions with padded rooms for safety. Learning from our past can help us see improvements for our future. Now, am I seeing the truth or am I seeing what they want me to see? Maybe they there is more to the story. Lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, it was first developed in 1938 by Albert Hoffman, who was a scientist, and he was working with a chemical that was found in ergo, which is a fungus that naturally grows on rye and other grains. It wasn't until 1943 that he discovered the hallucinogenic properties by accidentally ingesting a small amount, and this is what he reported. He reported that, I received an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic plates of colors. So Farrell Kirk's story that I'd mentioned in the beginning, which has been confirmed by the CIA, was involved in an undercover operation of mind control, and it was called MKUltra. MKUltra began in 1953, and it was intended to develop and identify drugs to be used in interrogations that would weaken the individual and force confessions. CIA.gov, and again, you can look this up, identified electroshock, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, verbal and sexual sexual abuse, isolation, and administering high doses of hallucinogens that did include LSD as methods for achieving mind control. Now, I'm going to give you a quote here by Sidney Gottlieb. He was the chief of the CIA's chemical division. Listen to how scary this statement is. I was a very minor missionary 
actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? So Farrell Kirk was given LSD without his consent and nearly committed suicide as he had experienced illusions, delusions, and periodic states of hallucinations that included paranoia, which was primarily due to his confusion on what was happening. And these types of experiments had similarities to the crimes that had been charged to the Nazi officers in the Nuremberg, Germany, that resulted in the sentencing of death for 12 individuals to crimes against humanity. The similarities and connections go further back in history. So on November 1st, 1943, the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union, they published their Moscow Declaration. And they promised that once the Nazi party was defeated, the Allies would pursue them to the utmost ends of the earth in order that justice may be done. Now, in some cases, this changed because agendas, fear, and control became supreme. So following the end of the war, over a thousand Nazi doctors and scientists were hired by the United States government with a promise of immunity. MKUltra was an operation that implemented the same style of experimentation as crime against humanity, which is to subject innocent, unwilling victims for study in the name of science. Now, again, according to CIA.gov, the race was on with the Soviet Union to seize as many German scientists as possible in anticipation of the Cold War. The Office of the Scientific Intelligence was created in 1949. They set up a program to interrogate Soviet spies. It was believed by the CIA that Russia had developed the capabilities of mind control, and it was determined to find out how U.S. spies would hold up if they were caught. Operation Bluebird was developed for a behavioral modification to prevent agents from providing information to our adversaries. Now, an offshoot of Operation Bluebird was the infamous MKUltra that I had discussed. So, my interest in discussing this is only to offer a brief overview, so I can point out the most important question that is often debated. Do the ends justify the means? Hallucinogens, such as psilocybin, mescaline, and LSD, were introduced to those drug-crazed hippies by the CIA for studies. Ken Kesey's acid tests were publicized since there were no covert operations of subjecting individuals to these drugs without their knowledge. So much of the restrictive conservative society held a strong dislike for these drug users, but probably had no knowledge of things that were going behind the scenes within our government. And again, who introduced LSD to these drug crazed hippies? our federal government. So now we come to the question of why was Timothy Leary declared the most dangerous man in America by Richard Nixon? On December 23rd, 1965, Timothy Leary was arrested for possession of marijuana after taking responsibility for the drug when the U.S. Customs agents found the substance in his daughter's underwear. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He was fined $30,000 and he was ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment. Now, he appealed the case with the argument that it was unconstitutional and violated the Fifth Amendment because it required a degree of self-incrimination. On December 26, 1968, Timothy Leary was arrested again for possession of two roaches, which are half-burned joints. The Supreme Court overturned his 1965 conviction in Leary versus the United States by agreeing that these charges were unconstitutional. But on January 21, 1970, he received a 10-year sentence in the state of California for the 1968 
state offense, and also an additional 10 years since he had been arrested prior to this by the federal government who had overturned his conviction, and they were to be served consecutively. After a short time in prison, he escaped with the assistance of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, and he made his way to Switzerland, where he attempted to shelter. Now, the United States government pressured Switzerland to incarcerate him, which they did for about a month, but then refused to extradite him. He traveled to Vienna, Beirut, and finally to Afghanistan, and eventually he returned to the United States and was arrested upon his arrival in 1972, and then he was released from prison on April 21st, 1976 by Governor Jerry Brown. During the 60s and 70s, Timothy Leary saw the inside of 36 prisons worldwide. Now, in July of August 1969, and this is kind of the question of how was he determined to be the most dangerous man in America? Charles Manson, he orchestrated nine murders at four locations with Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel committing the actual atrocities. So from 1968 to 1970, it is speculated that the Zodiac Killer murdered at least five people, and he was never caught. Both massacres occurred during Richard Nixon's presidency from 1969 to 1974. So how does a president define an individual who was arrested for the possession of a small bag of marijuana and two roaches as the most dangerous man in America when you have individuals such as Charles Manson and the Zodiac Killer who was never arrested and was still free. Is that answer related to maybe what Harry Anslinger had said, that marijuana is the most dangerous drug that creates in its users insanity, criminality, or death? Well, the problem with that argument is that Harry Anslinger changed that story years after the Marijuana Tax Act came into play. He knew that people understood that marijuana did not create in its users insanity, criminality, and death. What he changed his story to was that marijuana is the first step to heroin addiction. And so this is where the gateway theory comes in. So everybody that says that marijuana is a gateway, repeating what Harry Anslinger said. But there are 24 times a number of Americans who have tried marijuana and haven't touched heroin, according to national surveys. Now, Richard Nixon's explanation for the war on drugs that was delivered in a message to Congress in July of 1969 was as a response to an increase in heroin use and a rise of marijuana and hallucinogenic use by our students. Was this true, or was it what he wanted us to see that would fit his agenda? John Ehrlichman, the counsel and assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Nixon, was interviewed in 1994 by Dan Baum with Harper's Magazine, and he actually gave a very different story. And this is a quote that came from the interview. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He then continued by saying, we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So our government has proven over and over that their disdain and hatred for drugs revolves around personal interests that aren't focused on the safety of the public. Republicans and Democrats have used the war on drugs to fit agendas that are not in the best interest of the people by manipulating information that blinds us to reality through fear. Now, I have no 
no interest in arguing the dangers and risks of drug use, but I stand by my conviction that hatred, disgust, and shame will continue destroying the lives of Americans. There is no war on drugs, since it appears to be an irrational argument to fight and kill something that isn't alive. This war that we continue to battle is against the people who are struggling with substance abuse. If safety were the greatest concern, then alcohol should be scheduled with heroin, and it is, as it is highly addictive and has no medicinal purposes for it. Alcohol continues to kill more people every year than all illicit drugs combined. The Volstead Act proved that the black market causes murder, crime, and corruption once we create laws that prohibit something. Why do we continue to do the same thing? History provides the answer to this, as fear continues to be the method of control. So the president and legislatures have a tool to get elected or re-elected by overpowering their frontrunner and winning the seat. Now maybe it's time we stop seeing what we are told and start seeing through the facts without biases. Your agendas will cause you to either miss the truth or prove your hypocrisy. Do you blindly believe someone just because you like something that they've done? Do you see through your feelings? Because feelings are not facts. Will you ever learn to love if you are seen through hate? Thanks for joining me.